0: Gracious Heavenly Father, I ask now that you would um, uh, be mighty and powerful in the proclamation of your word. Father, we know that the greatest gifting to speak, to uh, convince, to challenge without the power of your Holy Spirit is just an exercise in vanity. So I pray, Father, that our confidence would never be in ourselves, not as I preach, not as we hear the preaching of your word, that we would trust entirely in the power of your Holy Spirit, and that he would move mightily to accomplish those gifts which you have given him to do, to empower the preaching of your word, to awaken dead hearts to life, and to strengthen and comfort the sheep of Jesus Christ, to hear his voice and know that he is their good shepherd. May we rest more in him, trust more in him alone, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Turn to Isaiah chapter 38. Today, uh, we're going to complete this short narrative interlude that you find right in the middle of Isaiah. And this, this interlude is kind of a conclusion and an introduction. It concludes the Assyrian threat, which has dominated a lot of Isaiah's earlier prophecies, and as we're going to see this morning, it transitions us into that new Babylonian threat and exile, which is going to be the backdrop of Isaiah's prophecies that we're going to hear after this. So let's start by reading chapter 38. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, "'Thus says the Lord, set your house in order.'" For you shall die. You shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father. I've heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and will defend this city. This shall be the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz turn back ten steps. So the sun turned back on the dial the ten steps by which it had declined. A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. I said, in the middle of my days, I must depart. I am consigned to the grave of Sheol for the rest of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent. Like a weaver, I have rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. From day to night, you bring me to an end. I calmed myself until morning. Like a lion, he breaks all my bones. From day to night, you bring me to an end. Like a swallow or a crane, I chirp, I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upward. Oh, Lord, I am oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. What shall I say? For he has spoken to me, and he himself has done it. I walk slowly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. Oh, Lord, by these things men live, and in all these is the life of my spirit, O, oh, restore me to health and make me live. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol does not thank you, death does not praise you, those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living he thanks you as I do this day, the father makes known to his children your faithfulness. The Lord will save me, and we will play my music on stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house of the Lord. Now Isaiah had said, let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. Hezekiah also had said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? This is the word of the Lord. This passage uh, we hear takes place while judah is still under the distress of the assyrian empire and during that time hezekiah receives his own personal distress he falls ill as you heard in his song he says he falls ill in the middle of his days if we look at the dates of hezekiah's reign from other passages it seems he was not yet 40. so isaiah comes and frankly tells hezekiah he's going to die And he offers Hezekiah no recourse. There is no hope of recovery. He just says, get your house in order. Now, despite this apparent hopelessness, Hezekiah immediately and ceaselessly mourns and prays. He says, he's chirping, he's moaning, he's like the animals that do not stop crying out. He says, my eyes are weary from looking upward. He will not stop imploring God. He will not leave him alone until God answers him. In Isaiah, we hear some of the content of Hezekiah's prayers. We hear him asking God to remember his faithfulness and his good works. Now, the the question I expect many of us have as we read this is, is Hezekiah praying for health on the basis of his goodness? This makes us feel a little bit uneasy, and I think there is a clear weakness, a clear self-interest in Hezekiah's prayer, and we're going to see that aspect of his personality appear through the rest of this passage, but... If there is some confusion in Hezekiah's motives as he prays, we can be sure that there is no confusion in God's motives when he answers Hezekiah's prayer. Who is Hezekiah? Yes, he is the king of Judah, but that makes him the current reigning son of David, and he is the one who currently bears and carries God's covenant with David. You'll remember what God said to David I will establish the throne of his kingdom, which is the kingdom of your son, forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. Now you'll remember when we were going through chronicles that every king in David's line could be evaluated based on their faithfulness to uphold this covenant. And those kings that were not faithful were often clearly rebuked and clearly punished with short reigns and ignoble deaths. So Hezekiah seems to be suffering the same fate of these wicked and faithless sons of David, dying of disease after only reigning for a short time. So from God's perspective, as he hears Hezekiah's prayer, this isn't simply a matter of a good man saying, I've been a good person, you should make me healthy. This is a son of David, who at least desired to uphold and live in God's covenant with David, asking God to be true to his side of those promises, to be true to his covenant. This is very clearly the basis of God's response to Hezekiah. Thus says the Lord, the God of your father, I have heard your father, David your father. I have heard your prayer. That's the important word and I missed it. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and I will defend this city. See here how God refers to Hezekiah as David's son. He's reminding Hezekiah of David's covenant and that that is the basis of his response to Hezekiah's prayers. In the second Kings account of this passage, it's even more clear as we hear at the end of God's answer that he will do this. He will grant Hezekiah life. He will deliver his people for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. So, whatever Hezekiah's motives were in his prayer, we must recognize that God's saving work here is not in response to Hezekiah's actions, but because of God's faithfulness to God's promises. That is what he desires to be held account to. So, God promises Hezekiah 15 years of life, but he doesn't stop there. In the same breath, he promises to completely deliver Jerusalem from Assyria. Now, God is granting Hezekiah promises that Hezekiah hasn't even asked for, much less deserved. But here we see that God is clearly treating Hezekiah as David's son. He is treating Hezekiah as the little M Messiah, the one who bears the responsibility, the anointing for the deliverance of God's people. God has bound up Hezekiah's personal distress with the distress of Jerusalem. And so he has bound up the promises of Hezekiah's deliverance with the deliverance of all of his people. So from Hezekiah's song and from this episode, I think we can see just five things about salvation that we can point out. And they are not in the order of your bulletin or the slides, whether that was uh, an attempt to deliberately antagonize our sound people, I will not say so, first, what we see about God's salvation from this passage, that God's salvation is all of grace, is only grace from beginning to end. And we've already seen that, of course, but in Hezekiah's song now, it becomes clear to Hezekiah that God's deliverance was in no way a response to Hezekiah's actions, but was entirely a gift of grace. Look at verse 17 in particular. But in love, you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast my sins behind your back. So Hezekiah recognizes how much he needed God to save him because it was not just physical death that Hezekiah needed to be saved from. He knew that without God's intervention, he was not just headed for the grave, but he was headed for the pit of destruction. He recognizes that this is his destination because of his own sin. It's because of sin that his death will not just be his end, but his death will be the beginning of the conscious, eternal experience of God's punishment. So Hezekiah knows that asking God to deliver him means not just asking God to give him life, but for God to forgive his sin. That is what has to happen. God has to cast it away, as it were, and free Hezekiah from its consequences for Hezekiah to be saved. Now, none of us can claim to deserve God's forgiveness and salvation from sin, Because sin, by definition, is the transgression by which we are shown to be unworthy of God's salvation. To really ask God to forgive our sins, to ask God to save us, to spare us from his punishment, is to believe in a salvation that is entirely undeserved. That we have shown we do not deserve, that we cannot deserve. It is asking God to save us entirely by grace. It is a salvation that we must recognize. God would be just and good to not offer us at all. So Hezekiah recognizes that when God does spare him, when God does save him, it is not because he has done something exceptional, because he's sinless than anyone else. It is because God is good. Hezekiah is saved because of who God is, because he is gracious, because, as Hezekiah says, of God's great love. That is the foundation of God's salvation. This is true of God's deliverance of Jerusalem as well. God could have let Hezekiah die at a young age. He could have let Jerusalem be overrun. He could have sent them all down together to the pit of destruction, and this would have been the fitting, natural consequence for their sin, except that God is a gracious God, that God is a loving God who makes good Promises to sinners to cast their sins behind his back and remember them no more. How can God forget sin? If it is good, if it would have been good for him to punish it, how can it be good for him not to? These events set the stage for Isaiah to make promises of a coming son of David who could take our sin upon himself who could bear our sins and be crushed for our iniquities. On the cross, that sin was placed behind God's back and on to the shoulders of Jesus. And there, God turned his face to Christ and Jesus felt the full wrath of the pit of destruction. This is the only reason that God delivers Hezekiah and you and I from the pit of destruction and offers us life when we cry out to him on the basis of his love and his grace and his promises, is all of love and all of grace. Second, our salvation is unto dwelling with God. Just as Hezekiah's fear was not simply to die, but to go to the place of punishment, his fear was not simply to leave this world, to lose his life, but to lose fellowship with God. Verse 11, he mourns, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. So for Hezekiah to be saved doesn't just mean that God allows him to keep existing. Consciousness is not what Hezekiah wants. It's that he can dwell near to God. That is his final praise in verse 20. The Lord will save me and we will play my music on stringed instruments all the days of our lives in the house of the Lord. Just as God doesn't just save us from death, but from wrath, he doesn't just save us for existing, he saves us for love. He saves us for fellowship with him, right? That's what Adam and Eve had in the garden that they lost. That's why Israel looked forward to being in the promised land, because that's where God was going to dwell. Remember Moses crying out with the people, don't, we don't want this land if God is not with us. This is our promise of eternal life, not just existing forever. Not just the gift of getting to think and be. But saved so that we might dwell near to God. So that we might dwell in his house for all the days and days and days of our eternal lives. That's what Jesus saved us for. And that's connected to our third point. Hezekiah and all of us are saved so that we might glorify God. Hezekiah says, it is good. It's a good thing that God granted life to him in Jerusalem. Why? If it was just for God to punish their sins, why is it good that God has granted life to them? So that they can be happy? So they can continue to pursue their hopes and dreams? There were so many things I wanted to do. So many hobbies I wanted to try. And now I get to do them because God has spared my life. That's why God saved me. No. It is good that God has saved Hezekiah because now... He will live to praise God. Verses 18 and 19. Sheol does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, he thanks you. As I do this day, the Father makes known to the children your faithfulness. Remember, salvation from death and punishment can only be salvation offered from our sin. So God cannot... And will not graciously save us to just continue to live for sin. For those passions and pleasures that we loved while we rebelled against God. Before we were saved. He saves us to restore us to the purpose for which we were made. To proclaim his glory. Through his salvation we enjoy this in a way that even Adam and Eve did not. Because now we don't just praise God for making us. We praise God for saving us. That is why God was pleased to send Jesus to save us, because God wanted Jesus to get glory as our savior. And that, believe it or not, is the greatest possible salvation that God could offer you. God saved you for an eternity, glorifying what is most worthy of glory. God saved you for an eternity of beholding what is most beautiful. God saved you for an eternity delighting in what is most delightful. So often, the salvation that we want from God is so much smaller, so much less than what God promised us. We don't want to be saved from God's wrath, we want to be saved from being unhappy. We want to be saved from our lack of success. Maybe we do want to be saved from sin, but how it makes our lives worse, how it embarrasses us and upsets our plans. We don't see that salvation from these things can only be found truly and lastingly in the greater salvation that God is offering. Our prayers show that we want salvation, but not unto what God has promised us. We're not interested in being near Him, in worshiping Him, in glorifying Him. We want to be saved so that we can continue to enjoy our own pleasures without worry, so that we can have what we desire, so that we can have our best life now. These smaller, weaker, often even sinful understanding of salvation get exposed when they get exposed in our suffering. This is the fourth thing we see about salvation in Hezekiah's song. That God's salvation can turn our distresses, which should have been a judgment on us, into a gift of grace to us. Hezekiah says again in verse 17, Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. He can see what happened in his terrible illness. It humbled him. It drove him to prayer. Even with no offer of relief, Hezekiah recognized he had nothing that he could do but put his eyes upon God and depend entirely upon him for salvation. Even expect it from God because he now totally, truly, perfectly understood that there was no way he could look at himself. There was no way he could look at anyone other than God. And that was the same heart that God was working in all his people through the distress of Assyria. God, Jesus did not take upon himself our suffering and punishment so that we could be delivered from trials and pain in this life. One day, trials and pain and sorrow will end, but God very deliberately leaves us in this world now and leaves us in its trials But his salvation transforms our trials from suffering unto judgment into a suffering that sanctifies and grows a faith in us and prepares us for that glorious future that we hope for. When we get tempted to see God's favor as wealth and health and comfort, a happy family, then we are trusting in a very unstable idea of salvation we're eventually going to think that God's saving project is a failure because we had bounded up in things that God had never promised. So God allows trials and bitterness so that we can take our eyes off of those things and get them back on him and his word and his true everlasting promises of salvation. This takes our eyes off of what was insecure and puts them on a salvation that is totally secure. And this is our fifth point this morning. Hezekiah was anxious about whether or not his salvation was sure. He said to Isaiah, "How will I know? How will I know?" So God gives Isaiah or gives Hezekiah a visible remedy. Isaiah tells him to apply figs to his boils. But then God also gives him a miraculous sign, so miraculous that it becomes famous in the ancient world. The sun recedes and Hezekiah can watch on the sundial, as the sun shifts backwards over Jerusalem. God didn't need to offer those signs to Hezekiah, did he? Couldn't he have just said, you have my word, Hezekiah, you can trust in my promises. But this is a gift of God's grace, even in our weakness, that God wants us to be confident in his salvation. He gives us everything we need to be assured that that salvation is secure. He wants us not just to be saved by Him, but to rest in Him and His salvation. We have so many gifts to know that our salvation is secure. He gives us each other, He gives us His Word, He gives us visible signs of the gospel that we can see proclaimed like baptism that we got to witness today. He gives us this for the sake of our faith. And then all of this is empowered by his greatest gift, by the Holy Spirit himself, so that we can not just call out to God for salvation, but we can be assured he has answered our cry. And he holds our salvation securely in his hand. A salvation that is secure is a salvation that you can praise God for even now it adds to that worship that we were saved for. We don't just get to look back on all God has done, but we can look forward and know that what God has promised will happen is just as secure as what God has said has already happened. And now we can say with Hezekiah, the Lord has saved me, the Lord will save me. Now one interesting thing we see in Hezekiah's song is how many eyes it has in it. Hezekiah is thankful that God has delivered the nation from Assyria, but his praise is focused upon his personal salvation, just as his prayers were focused upon his own salvation. And this forms a striking contrast with what we are going to see in the next chapter. Let's read Isaiah 39. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, Oh, they came to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming. When all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon, nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. This is the word of the Lord. So this envoy comes from Merodach-Baladan, which isn't quite as good a title as the Rakshaba, but it's pretty close. Chronicles tells us that they came in response to the miraculous sign that God performed for Hezekiah. But Merodach-Baladan was always scheming against Assyria. He was something of a freedom fighter, always trying to make alliances, always trying to build up their forces so they could overthrow the Assyrian Empire. So if Merodach Baladan sends an envoy to your house with fancy letters and lots of gifts, and they would be very interested in seeing everything in your storehouses in your armory, then it's pretty clear that overtures towards aligning against the Assyrians are at least going to be made. Now, Hezekiah has just received these amazing promises from God. Not only has Hezekiah been told, you will definitely be spared from this Assyrian invasion, but Hezekiah has been told, your reign will be secure for the next 15 years. This means that when the envoy comes... From Merodach Baladan, Hezekiah should be able to say, thank you very much for your concern. I'm doing great because I have a very gracious God who has made wonderful promises to me. Now, you all have a great day. But he doesn't. You can tell from his conversation with Isaiah that Hezekiah is pretty flattered that this envoy has come all the way from a far country just to see me, just to ask how I was doing. Hezekiah has just been praising God for forgiving him for his sin, for sparing him from death, but just a little flattery from Babylon suddenly has him showing off his wealth like he is responsible for everything he has done. Let me show you the whole kingdom. Let me show you everything I've got, everything I've accomplished. 2 Chronicles tells us very clearly in its account of this episode that this was wicked pride and was clearly an affront to the salvation that God had just provided for Hezekiah, Hezekiah, who was so desperate in his pleas to God when he suffered, now seems to forget God as soon as his suffering ends and he starts to feel successful. Friends, for so many of us, the actual great test of our faith comes not through suffering, but in the form of flattery. Trials drive you to look at God. They drive you to grapple with his word. They drive you to ask, what is God's will? What is his plan? I want to know to seek out his salvation, to say, I need to know what he's actually promised because if I don't have that, I'm done for. But when people start to tell you how great you are, how much you've accomplished, is this not so often a greater test of your faith? Because this is when Everything is pulling us to take our eyes off God. To take our eyes off of our dependence on him and to start putting our eyes upon ourselves and thinking about what we have been able to accomplish. We are even so hungry for people who do not know God, who are enemies of God, to flatter us on their terms. We want to be successful according to their rubric. We wouldn't mind hearing someone tell us how attractive we are that we're pretty successful in this world, that we're really talented, that we are a wizard on the mandolin. I wanted to include a personal example here so you can know that I struggle with this just like you do. We so easily fall to flattery, even based on the assessment of God's enemies. Never forget the parable of the sower. Some seeds were choked out by suffering, others were strangled by the deceitfulness of riches. The false flattery of the world and its treasures. So Hezekiah, through the flattery of Babylon, finds himself acting as though all that good that God has done for him was to his own credit. And through their flattery, he falls for the same trap that he had already fallen in with Egypt. He trusts deceitful, fickle, selfish men instead of the God who has made him sure promises of salvation. Isaiah warns Hezekiah that this misplaced self-confidence conscious is going to have terrible consequences. Hezekiah wanted to look like a big man to those Babylonians. He wanted to look rich and powerful, but as is so often true with worldly flattery, The Babylonians weren't looking out for Hezekiah. They were thinking of their own benefit. Hezekiah thinks he's shown himself to be a strong ally. Instead, he's presented himself as a fat goose. Those Babylonians would like to devour just as soon as they get out from under a serious thumb. Isaiah tells Hezekiah this is exactly what is going to happen. And once again, the natural consequences of sin are God's just consequences. Isaiah says, God will be gracious again. He will keep this judgment out of Hezekiah's reign, but Babylon is coming. The wealth of Judah will be carried away, even Hezekiah's sons carried away and kept from producing posterity as they are sent to Babylon. And what does Hezekiah say? Okay. Okay. The word of the Lord that you've spoken is good, for he thought there'll be peace and security in my days. Hezekiah doesn't respond to Isaiah like a faithless man. He doesn't reject God's word. He doesn't mock it. But his response shows this sanguine acceptance, which you can immediately contrast with his response when he found out about his own illness. Then he wept he wept immediately, and he wept persistently. He constantly entreated God to save him without even a promise that that could happen. Now, he seems to accept the finality of Isaiah's prophecy. I can go about my business because it doesn't affect me. And so this king who has been a wonderful example of pleading God's grace for his own salvation doesn't have the energy or the time to plead for it for his other people. Now, he, for his people he has done that in the past but in the past deliverance for Jerusalem also meant deliverance for Hezekiah but now that he is confident that these trials will not affect him he doesn't have the energy this is his a failure of his messianic responsibility as a son of david this is a failure to claim God's promises to David on behalf of his own people. In his mind, Hezekiah's song of salvation belongs to Hezekiah and to no one else. Chronicles tells us that in this matter... God left Hezekiah to his own heart. God was showing who Hezekiah on his own strength as his own man was, based on his own righteousness. God is using this episode to show us even this king, who was one of Judah's best kings, was just like us. A man who found it so much harder to put his mind on the needs of others than his own need. A man incapable, not just by power, but by his own character to secure a salvation for anyone else beyond his own lifetime. Hezekiah was a good king. Hezekiah was a better man than many, 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 many of the people we have chosen to put our trust in. But he's not a good savior. He ultimately leaves us longing for a better king a better son of David to come and really fulfill those promises. And so he sets the stage for Isaiah's prophecies that we're going to hear, which are going to promise lasting comfort is coming. Lasting peace is coming. Secure salvation is coming because a better king is coming. Not just a more powerful king, but a king who is willing to be a servant and a savior of his people. Friends, let's think about our Savior, Jesus. From before time began, Jesus was reigning in the presence of his Father. He had no need to be concerned about our salvation. He did not need to trouble himself for us, except maybe to judge us and be rid of us. And yet, he left his throne. He traded all of that glory for a human life of pain and suffering. All those things that Hezekiah was relieved to hear he wouldn't have to experience, Jesus took them on himself even though he didn't deserve, certainly did not need to endure them. And he did it instead of his people. Hezekiah was so pleased to escape his people's suffering. Jesus was pleased to offer his people and escape from an eternal suffering by taking it upon himself, even unto death. Hezekiah, through his weakness and his sin, could not offer lasting security and salvation to his people. But Jesus, by virtue of his power and his love, can extend to you a salvation that is secure forever. Every stage of Jesus' life and ministry is meant to add to the absolute assurance and confidence that you can have in Jesus. Look upon his incarnation. He who is in the very form of God who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but took upon himself the form of humanity so that he could be perfectly able to represent us, even while he was still the God perfectly powerful to save us. And then his perfect life, where he lived for 33 years so that he could obtain the perfect record that we never could. The signs that he showed as our brother read that point that this is clearly the one person who you can put your trust in, and then his once-for-all time satisfactory atonement on the cross, in our place, and then his once-for-all death-defeating resurrection, his ascension to mediate for for, for us before God in his very presence. Each of those things is told to you to add to your absolute confidence, to add to your rest in him. That, as he said this morning, there is absolutely nothing that can get you out of his hand if your trust is in him. There is no one else, not yourself, not Hezekiah, no teacher, no celebrity, no one who deserves your trust like Jesus. No one else can offer you such confidence and rest in their salvation. Now today, you might be feeling like Hezekiah when he was suffering from his illness. You feel the end of yourself and your ability, and you are crying out to God for hope because you have nowhere else to cry. You can see that without him, you are doomed. Or today... You might feel like Hezekiah after he's been visited by a Babylonian envoy. You feel pretty successful on people's terms. You feel secure, in need of nothing. It's hard to believe that you are a person who needs to be saved. The message is exactly the same. It's the message that Peter preached to self-satisfied leaders in Jerusalem just as he preached it to broken sinners. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Whether you feel successful or hopeless, strong or weak, capable or incapable, raise your eyes to God like Hezekiah did and then keep them there. Lasting hope and certain salvation is coming from nowhere else. And God has already accomplished this salvation entirely and completely in Jesus. It is already secured by him. So whether you feel strong or weak, able or incapable, your confidence is not meant to come from looking at yourself. Stop feeling strong or weak based upon constantly looking inward. Take your eyes off of yourself and your failures and put them on Jesus. Jesus take your eyes off of your pride and your successes and put them on Jesus. Even after we have trusted in him, we know that both of those temptations will pull on us. Sometimes, from one moment to the next, we feel too sinful, we feel too successful for the salvation of Jesus. And one of the gifts he's given us to remember all he's accomplished is baptism. Today, what did our brothers Derek and Gendrick declare. They declared that their old selves, all of its sin and all of its successes, they are dead to that. That is not where hope lies. It's gone under the water. It's died. It's been buried with Christ. It's been totally cleaned and washed away. And now they celebrate that they rise again to a life in which they can boast only in Christ because they shared in his death and his resurrection. They no longer need to trust in their own insecure ability, not when they're feeling bad about themselves or when they're feeling good about themselves. Now they can trust in an unchanging, perfect Savior who has already obtained for them and for us a sure salvation. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is seated even now at the right hand of God, and indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As Paul has said to the Romans, Friends, never let despair or flattery, success or suffering, divert your eyes from a salvation that is already perfectly secure. Hezekiah could not offer his salvation song to anyone other than himself. But Jesus did. He gives that song to us. So now we can sing it with Hezekiah. In love, you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. You have cast all my sins behind your back. Sheol does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope in your faithfulness. The living, the living, he thanks you as we do this day. The Father makes known to the children your faithfulness. The Lord will save us and we will play music on stringed instruments all the days of our lives forever and ever and ever at the house of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ we have an eternally secure salvation. And Father, we know in our weakness the temptation is so strong to put our eyes on ourselves in our suffering or to put our eyes on ourselves in our successes. So Father, I pray that we would make use of every means and that your spirit would powerfully, mightily keep our eyes upon Jesus Christ, the one and only Savior who has offered a true Perfect, lasting, secure salvation to anyone who trusts in him. And I pray, Father, that if there are those who are trusting in anything else, that they would see that the salvation Jesus promises is bigger, is better, is truer, is richer, and is more secure than anything they have hoped in. And Father, I pray that for those here who know Jesus, who are tempted to despair, or even to pride, just to keeping their eyes upon themselves, Father, may you grant them the rest that comes only through Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.